our average customer is 33 years old, makes $166,000 a year, and again, is generally employed in a field that uses technology or because they tend to be millennials and Gen Z folks are very used to having technology. So they want self-service, anytime availability. Um, they don't like talking that much on the phone, okay? They, they'd rather text. And so you're going to see, and as we talk more, a lot of the stuff that's going on in our business makes us more efficient for sure. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is a conversation with Mark Perel, the CEO of Equity Residential, one of the largest and most respected public companies in the real estate space, and certainly a leader in the apartment business. As you'll hear in the conversation, although I've not really known Mark, I've known EQR fairly deeply since its early days as a public company, and this conversation is a fairly geeky deep dive touring through the different aspects of what's truly one of the best run long-term hold real estate businesses in the country. Mark sounds the themes that you've heard again and again on Leading Voices, and it all bears repeating about great operations, technology, investment savvy, disciplined capital strategy and transparency, and being a long-term thinking responsible citizen in the business. When Leading Voices started, we spent about 80% of the conversations on our guests' career journey to discover pathways of success towards their leadership. Now we spend 80% talking about the business and maybe only 20% of the time talking about how they got there. But I'm finding as the podcast has evolved that starting with the discussion of their business and walking across the different themes of their work, the demonstration of their leadership jumps out more clearly when, at the end of the episode, we then talk about their careers. I'm just starting in on a CEO search for one of my long-term clients right now, and I know that each of these themes and indicators of leadership wisdom, breadth of perspective, and one's making the bet on a candidate's ability to really take a business to the next level and beyond, which we hear every time on the podcast, will be on my mind for my client which is a segue to my thanks to Terra ZRG for giving me and you, our listeners, the privilege of these conversations on Leading Voices and for my career in a business I love and the opportunity to work with great clients and candidates. Check out the Leading Voices archives where there are many conversations adjacent to this one with Mark. You can hear my interview with the chair and founder of EQR, Sam Zell. You can hear my conversation with Fred Tawami, who was EQR's first president of property management and who went on as CEO of Invitation Homes. You can hear my conversation with Keith Oden, the president of Camden Properties, as well as other leaders in the apartment business like Doug Bibby, who we're interviewing again on the next episode alongside with Ed Walter, Ron Terwilliger, Leonard Wood, Bob DeWitt, Daryl Carter, and others all who've been on Leading Voices. I invite you to go to the archive, check out these and other episodes, and share them with your colleagues. If you have comments on the show, feel free to email me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Mark Perel. Mark Perel, thank you for being on Leading Voices and welcome to the podcast. I am looking forward to our conversation today. I've been close, if close is a word because it's a personal word, to EQR almost since your inception back when Doug Crocker was your CEO. And in my words, the compatriots in the industry were in 1993, four, five, we're coming together and forming the modern REIT industry, both in the apartment sector and elsewhere, and creating a really institutionalized business, which we didn't have before that. 
We're going to talk about that history, which I've explored many times on Leading Voices, but less about history than where we are today and where we're going with the industry. So welcome and thank you for being on the show. Well, thanks, Matt, for including me and including Equity Residential in your podcast. Very excited to be here. Love to do it. And I ask each guest to introduce themselves just for a moment, and then we'll get into everything about your company and about you. Sure. I'm Mark Perel. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Equity Residential. We're about a $40 billion apartment REIT headquartered in Chicago, Illinois. Cool. And the company was founded, just a little bit of the history of where the company came from. We all know this was Zell's portfolio of some sort, but talk about that just a little bit. Sure. So we went public in August of 1993 on the New York Stock Exchange. Our ticker symbol is EQR. And we really, at that point, were about an $800 million in total value collection of apartment assets that Sam Zell, our founder, had through various tax syndicates and other limited partnerships he kind of assembled. Barry Sternlich also contributed some properties at that point. And the big mantra, the companies had different phases, but the big mantra was just to get big as quick as we could, get an investment grade credit rating, get in the S&P 500, get scale, uh, get all those things that I'm sure we'll talk about during the course of the conversation that you know make for a good business in terms of operating efficiency and just Again, and the ability to attract investors. Mm -hmm. And let's think about, I think about the companies in terms of generations. And that first generation was to get to scale as quickly as possible. And, you know, you guys in Camden and Avalon, then Avalon, not yet Avalon Bay. And then I think of kind of a second generation, which was people perfecting the platform. And maybe you're the third or fourth generation in this business, taking it to some next level, which is what we're going to talk a lot about today. Yeah, I like how you said that. It's certainly interesting. I do think Doug's very successful tenure was all about getting scale, about getting to a size where operating efficiency mattered, where we could raise capital cheaply, both debt and equity, all those things that just so important when you're in a capital intensive business like apartments. I certainly think David Nethercutt contributed a great deal to making this company the more focused entity that it is. The big change there was the strategy shift to focus on the affluent renter. That was the big strategy shift between Doug Crocker and David Nethercutt. We had come to the conclusion we'd sell our, our best asset in a place like Phoenix, and we'd sell our worst asset in a place like San Diego, and San Diego's returns were much better. And we just came to this conclusion, and again, this would be in the mid-2000s, so call it 2005, that we would be better off being invested in what we call the knowledge economy. And so we were very early on that boat compared to most real estate investors. The idea that these big 24-7 coastal cities were going to attract the best renters. They had high housing costs so people wouldn't run off and buy homes. Because if you think about 05, <clears throat> this was the housing boom. This was a point where single family was eating our lunch in the apartment industry. So for us, our best residents in a place like Phoenix, they didn't stay very long. And our worst residents didn't pay the rent. So it was not an ideal demographic. And so by moving to this demographic that was more of this renter that wanted to be with us, that kind of had to be with us in places like Manhattan and San Francisco, we thought we were going to a better place. That was the transformation that started in 05 and really ended in 13 when we completed the Archstone transaction. Mm -hmm. Let me ask a question about that because it's interesting. Both the affluent renter, but it was supply-constrained markets versus non-supply-constrained markets. And then it mm -hmm. also wound up being the coastal cities versus the course, the central cities. So all of those trends together, there are affluent people in Dallas, but there's a lot of supply, I'm guessing is the differential. And they could own. 
You're right to point that out. I focus on the affluent ramp just for ease of reference. But these markets brought together, again, places like San Francisco and Los Angeles and New York brought together a combination of things we thought would be very advantageous for us. Again, a renter who could afford to pay the rent that was in a good industry, was getting good raises. So think of technology, financial services, higher education, supply. We thought it was hard to build in those places, usually because of government regulation or land availability. And our biggest competitor, which is single family ownership, was hard because it was expensive to buy. You certainly can buy even in New York, but your commute is so significant that you're in a different category. You probably had your second or third kid. You're sort of making a lifestyle decision. There wasn't a financial trade-off at that point in your mind. So those, the combination of all those things, again, supply, we thought better demand over the long haul, we thought would give us better returns. And we were right for a good period of time. And if you were right for a good period of time, then COVID may have changed some of that and taxes and politics where the population started shifting and you're back to some of those markets after having exited those markets. Is that true? Yeah. And two things changed. You're right. The environment changed. Those markets changed. And some of our understanding changed. Or a few things changed. I want to talk about like how those markets changed and use, for example, Atlanta. We're back in the Atlanta market. But what we owned before were these far suburban assets, Matt. They were out of ways. A lot of the residents had much more modest incomes. At that point, when single family was cheaper, it was much easier for them to buy. It just was not easy to move the rent very much. What we own now is more in Midtown, sort of heading north up 400, sort of in a different, these are people that are making, you know, 90 to $120,000 a year. Um, there isn't a lot of overlap. And if you look at those areas, single family is expensive there. Buying a home in the areas we're in, a desirable location, is expensive. So, what the markets did that changed that was very interesting is their housing became expensive too. So Atlanta, not everywhere, not universally, but in the areas that were desirable to our demographic, ownership became expensive. Supply was still there, but demand was so significant from these higher end renters that it really created a good environment. So the environment changed. We also had a realization about our portfolio being in only six cities. So when we got to the very end of 2015, we were in Seattle, the Bay Area, Southern California, Washington, D.C., Boston, and New York. Being very concentrated like that, we had a little bit of a supply blip in San Francisco, threw our numbers off because every market is material when you're only in six markets. So we had this evolution in thinking that was something that I actually got to work on as a potential candidate for this job that was really important about how would you refine the footprint and my point was, let's reduce volatility, focus on growing cash flow over the long haul. These affluent renters are in different places. Denver's expensive too now. So we started to go to places where same characteristics, expensive single family, a lot of affluent renters, a lot of demand. The supply was missing because places like Dallas have a lot of supply and we're back in Dallas. They also got a lot of demand. They have less political risk. The other thing that changed is coastal markets had more political risk. We really didn't see that as true in 2005 and 2009. In fact, some of those political risks were helpful to us because they kept people from building, right. you know? But now those risks have changed, and I know we'll talk about it. They've become a little bit more acute. It's interesting. You like that they didn't build because that supply constrained it even further, but then the backlash comes back and bites you on the butt in the other perspective. 
Yes. Hey, yes. Let's go back to history for a few minutes, because a, a couple of interesting things that we passed by here in the conversation. One was the, the sense of size and scale. And I'm thinking to your founding, and I'm thinking of Zell. And he, at the same time he founded Equity Residential, he founded Equity Office. And my sense is that scale worked well in the capital markets for Equity Office, but not on operations for Equity Office. And it worked really well for the apartment business, just totally different businesses. But I'm wondering if you have any comments about kind of the, those differentials between sectors. Yeah, I wasn't close to the operations side of equity office. It's hard for me to comment on that part. Our embrace, again, in the mid-2000s of technology, of these centralized leasing systems, these lease rent optimizers. You know, again, it's a system United Airlines uses to optimize airfares internet listing services, all of that stuff really worked for us. We are a consumer. We're not a B2B business. We're a you know, business to consumer business. And all those technologies, again, the ability to access our stock of apartments online, to be able to know prices. I mean, the old days when I rented as, you know, and I'm in my mid fifties now, remember going to the grocery store and getting a guide and not knowing if they had an available apartment or what exactly the price was. And now you're online, you can compare all that. It's very efficient. So I think operationally, apartments had the advantage of a whole bunch of really useful technology coming to pass at the same time, improving revenue management by a ton and expense management too. Mm -hmm. And another change in the industry is private equity. When the REITs came up at the era that we're talking about, private equity was not a big deal and the REITs really transformed the business. But in the last cycle, the, the private equity firms, particularly Blackstone and Starwood, and you mentioned Barry a few minutes ago, but mm -hmm. their capital raising has really transformed things. Talk about playing in a business where they have maybe the capital advantage, maybe not the operational advantage, but talk about that a little bit. Hmm. Well, first of all, very well-run organizations. We have a lot of interaction with them, all these industry groups. So besides just talking about their growth, I do want to talk about things that public real estate has that are special advantages, we think in the long run, and that's transparency and liquidity. You can buy and sell EQR stock any day the stock market's open. You have great transparency. You've heard all the, our chairman's comments about open kimono and, you know, these vehicles that other, that private equity sponsors have some disclosure, but the extent of it by public apartment holders is so much more. So, I do see the growth that I think the PE firms had. I, again, think they're very well run. A lot of that gas for that growth, though, came from cheap debt. And I think the fact that debt's more expensive now, I think that right now we're in a negative leverage situation where interest rates are higher than cap rates. That's a very uncompetitive place for someone who's a debt-focused buyer. And they'll figure it out. They're smart folks. But I'm just saying, I think the advantages of public real estate, of transparency, and of liquidity are really going to show through, but they are forced to be reckoned with. They are more interested, though, in apartments that aren't our target. So our target of apartment buildings are going to run super efficiently that have these affluent renters in place where you're not repositioning the asset. They like putting capital in and repositioning assets. We've often found that those IRRs, because we measure our IRRs on an unleveraged basis, are not enough to compensate for the risk. Whereas when you start using leverage, you may get more comfortable there until interest rates start going up like they're like they're going up now. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. And also their hold period winds up being shorter, although some of these vehicles look more perpetual 
like mm-hmm. you are, which changed the dynamics. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when they're more in the core area, using more modest leverage, which some of these vehicles do and they purport to be perpetual, then you sort of think about transparency and liquidity, like I talked about. But still, I mean, EQR is about 19% debt of our capital structure and 81% equity. Most of our public competitors are similar. You know, that's not even close. I mean, when you look at, you know, a, a PE vehicle, the amount of debt is 60%. So they do have a different risk profile that needs to be accounted for as well. Mm-hmm. And does that risk profile come to roost at a moment when interest rates double, but not, I mean, 60%, you still have a fair amount of float. Yeah, I don't predict any great dislocations in the PE space. I, I think the business model has probably become incrementally less attractive for them. Um, I, they probably will be less of a participant in the marketplace for a little while. Um, they may have to raise all their IRR targets. They certainly will because they have to use less debt now because of the negative leverage. So my guess is they're probably just not quite as voracious going forward for a while because I think they they had the perfect storm in the last three years. And I'm, I'm just not sure that circumstance exists anymore. It'll be interesting to watch what happens with that. Yeah. I'm also curious on the operational platform side, either to compare it to that, but that matters less than you own in perpetuity kind of more or less. And if you have that type of long-term horizon on holding a property, then the way you manage it and the investments you could put into both the asset but the operating platform, back to the comments about technology, are just huge. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we want to grow our company, we have to do a great job with the capital we have already. We got to operate the heck out of the capital we have already. These buildings, these 300 properties and this $40 billion we've already been entrusted with. So just to sketch out how we're thinking about technology right now, I mean, our customer, our average customer is 33 years old, makes $166,000 a year. And again, is generally employed in a field that uses technology or because they tend to be millennials and Gen Z folks are very used to having technology. So they want self-service, anytime availability. Um, they don't like talking that much on the phone, okay? Yes. They, they'd they rather text. And so you're going to see, and as we talk more, a lot of the stuff that's going on in our business makes us more efficient for sure, uh, but it also meets them where the customer is. They want more interaction um, electronically. They want more interaction in a way that's suited to automation and things like that, as opposed to, I'm going to say as more of a um, closer to a baby boomer person, a person who expected a little more personal attention. I think they'd rather have point of time, immediate uh, attention, and they're happy to take that from a technology source. And they'd probably rather not talk to a person in many instances. Mm -hmm. And how does that then change the interaction with your team members? And maybe there's less team members that's more efficient. They don't have to deal with the interpersonal interaction as much. But you do have an army and property management and operations is about executing that across the board. It's not all touchless because there's people who have to do stuff. How does that work over time? And all kinds of things to drill into on that. Yeah, it's a great topic. Well, first, a plug for the 2000 person army you just referred to. I mean, these are on-site people. They do the on-site leasing activities, customer relations, as well as all the maintenance work. We call them service technicians, service work. I mean, they were at COVID, they were on site. We have 150,000 people living with us and they needed to be safe at home during COVID. 
and these folks took care of them. So by no means do I hope that we have no people at our properties. What I hope we have is efficient people. I want our salespeople to be closers, not stuck with all the bureaucracy around the sales process. I want our technicians to be repairing things, not going back to the tool shed to get a wrench they forgot. And a lot of the technology we have, for example, on the service side really advances that. So imagine when you wake up, you have as a service technician for us, you open an app on your phone because then this isn't the future. This is the now. And that app tells you your first three jobs are repairing an air conditioner in unit 5A, repairing a, a refrigerator in unit 6A, and potentially 7A's got a problem with a, a plumbing issue. So you know what tools to take. You're entering the unit at the right time. We know when you went and, and left. So we can monitor that's so a little bit better security. And by the way, let's say it, I take an hour to fix that refrigerator. And yet when I report the problem in, it's in the company's opinion, it really should have taken half an hour. Maybe I need more training, you know? So it helps the employees. So a lot of this stuff is helpful to our employee and our customer and saves money. So they're really, a lot of this technology is not a zero sum game for any of the interest groups. It ends up being better all around. I mean, going back and forth to the tool sheds, no fun. So I, I like what it does on the service side. And just to hit sales quickly, again, a lot of the sales process was pretty inefficient. You tour me, you tour you, you, you didn't self-select as much. Now with technology, you're much sure. You've got us down to three or four semifinalists. People still, by and large, want to see the unit they're going to rent. So they're going to come. And instead of having me guide them around, I'm going to say, okay, Matt, you've already pre-registered on our system. So there's the technology. We've cleared you. We do a quick background check using your driver's license. You show your driver's license at the front desk. We give you a key fob or an access card. Go to the unit with a map and you see the amenities. You don't have me following you around pitching. You can go with your partner, your mother, your friend and talk candidly. Go look at the unit. Come back. Give us. Remember, we have your driver's license. So you're going to give us back the fob and off you go. About 80% of our eventual sales are done in that manner now. But you can see the process. It's customer centric. It's less of the bureaucracy. It's more the technology handling those needless details. It's interesting. We're all being trained to do this. So, you know, I stayed in hotels. I, I bought three hotel rooms for the night for last week's trip. And it was all online and I didn't care. But that starts to give you training wheels to do it to somewhere you're going to live for a couple of few years. Yeah. Well, at, at the grocery store, I remember 10 or 12 years ago, seeing my first self-service checkout and being sort of outraged that they were outsourcing that labor to me. And now I intentionally always go to the salesman because I've been trained to do it. So I think, you know, even us 55-year-olds can be trained to use technology appropriately and have just as good a customer experience. You got to have great technology. And that's what the pressure is. And companies like ours is staffing up that IT team making sure you've got resources, uh, whether they're systems or people, that give that customer a great experience. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about turnover of residents and turnover of staff, particularly kind of site-level staff. And let's stick with site-level staff because you're talking about them right now. Mm -hmm. And I remember in the apartment business maybe 10, 15 years ago, along, uh, from large owners, it might have been 50% per year or 40% per year turnover. And I'm wondering if all of this technology and training makes people stickier to one company or another because your operating platform is different than the guy across the street. Yeah. Well, obviously, you're very aware of these issues, given your 
professional. But right now, I, I did look this up. Our current turnover um, is 30% as of the end of March. So just in one quarter, it normally would be 22%. So it is certainly elevated turnover. Uh, we had a great conversation with our board at our regular meeting a couple of weeks ago. Human capital management is the top of every management team, every board's list of things to talk about. We have done a lot better lately with our on-site people. So normal vacancy for on-site, again, I'm talking about leasing and service folks, is around 5%. Last year, this time, because again of departures, COVID fatigue, and this was industry-wide, it's not an EQR issue, but we were running more like 10% vacancy. That put huge stress on our people. So we took some actions, we pre-hired, uh, got a little more aggressive in some of our recruiting efforts. And now we're back down to around five for our on-site people. We have really solved that. So you still have that turnover, but we have a lot of qualified people coming in the door too. So we really feel like we've reached pretty good equilibrium on-site. Yes, let's stick with on-site for a few minutes. When I said 50%, maybe 15 years ago, was is that right? Or 40% turnover? So you got that from say 40% to 22%, but then COVID got it back to 30%? You're in the right neighborhood. I mean, in a good year, EQR would have expected 40%, 30 to 40% on-site turnover, you know? And then, so this number I gave you was sort of just through the first quarter. I mean, we have a lot of first quarter departures because you pay bonuses at the end of, you know, right around the holidays. So people often will change jobs in the first few months of each year in our business, but you're in the right range. So turnover is high on the on-site side, but we have a lot of programs. Show people the career path, give people frequent promotions, give them a lot of feedback. We have a lot of systems and processes to try. If you want to be a service person, you can have a great career at Equity Residential. You can make a lot of money. You can do a lot of interesting things. You can keep learning. And how much of your, this is a favorite topic for me, as you can tell, and it, it's not because I'm a recruiter. We don't recruit at the site level. It's just a different thing. But for careers in the industry, it does matter. And I wonder how much you see this as an EQR thing for yourself to promote and how much of this is an industry effort for people to see this as a career and maybe a career versus, I don't know if they're alternatives, is a Walmart, right? For these yeah. kind of folks, just talk a little bit about that and maybe the future of how we promote yeah. this to be an industry people want to go into at that level. I think we started talking, David Santee, our former chief operating officer, about, you know, the, the absence of the handyman, the fact that people just weren't learning those skills in high school anymore and going to the trades. That just wasn't happening. And that that was going to be a real pinch as all these folks that were good with their hands sort of aged out of the workforce. So we've seen this coming. We have a pretty aggressive service apprentice program. We take you unskilled. We pay you from day one. We put you in an experienced person. We really try to train you up. And then you get a pretty good bump on your comp once you're qualified to kind of operate on your own. And we look for diverse hires in that area. So we we kind of scour the community. That's been pretty successful. That gets us people. Uh, to answer your question precisely, I don't know of an industry-wide effort to recruit. There's a lot of education and exchange of best practices like our service apprentice program. We find that people want to see a track. So I don't want to be just your maintenance guy. I want to know what I could be in five years. I want to understand what you're doing to sort of train me, promote me, not just money, but just you know, respect and responsibility and things like that. So we have a lot of programs, Matt, about that. In fact, we had our we have our company conference this year. We had in Atlanta, 
Uh, first time since the pandemic. It was great. We had 700 leaders of the company together. We have an event called Maintenance Mania, where we watch the maintenance guys that are some of the best maintenance people in the company, you know, do different semi-complicated things in front of everyone as quickly as possible and then get judged by it. It is so, there's not a fun activity at these events because these people are so proud of their properties and their skill set, And so you got to celebrate that. If you can't celebrate your service team, they won't stay. Absolutely. And let's take that up a level. If I think about people who lead property management and lead operations, at years ago, that was a challenge because people capable of that level of leadership who have the educational background for that didn't exist in the industry. So think about it as the career path of, okay, I'm president of property management. And a lot of folks, Peter principled up, not having gone to college, let alone having any higher education, which does help at that point of sophisticated leadership. So as you move up further, especially you're trying to move, that big move is from community manager, which is what we call our property managers, up to area manager, where you're running eight properties and you're really managing eight different people. So now for the first time, you're not touching things directly. You're leading through others. As you know, Matt, you've done this so long. That's the big change, right? Leading through others is a different thing than just if it's your property and you don't like how that building looks, gosh darn it, you're going to walk down there and make sure it's done right. Whereas instead, I've got to motivate you to go and take care of your property in the right way if you're not doing so. We have a lot of training around that. We have training. If you start to aspire to do that, we give you a lot of classes and feedback. How do you become an area manager at Equity Residential? How do you take that step to then being a regional manager and a vice president? Financial literacy. By the way, a lot of these people super good at consumer stuff. They know every person on the property. They're great at keeping their team excited and motivated. What can be a very challenging job some days, but they're not necessarily financially literate, which is your point. They don't understand all the operating statements and the nuance and why gap accounting might be a little different than what they see on their sheet. So we have classes in that. I think, again, like the service side, show them the path. We got a lot of training at our company and that's distinct. If you and I were running a small property management company, we wouldn't have a lot of training. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have the ability to. And so what we can offer you is just, you know, you will at equity either advance on your own merits or we will train you so well that you'll be the star at wherever you end up. And I think we keep a lot of people under that theory that they can keep moving up in the organization and also being big helps. I mean, we have 30 plus area regional managers in the company. You know, that's, that's terrific. You know, that's real opportunity. There's always some turnover in a group that large. I always want to generalize it to the very large established owners who have business platforms. Mm-hmm. And you're among the top of them, just for our listeners, as they think about the context of this, but there's probably 20, 30 companies, not at quite at your scale, but that have that kind of background, have that kind of platform to be able to manage people's career and help grow people internally that way. Yeah, I think the National Apartment Association meeting, I believe, was last week. And I think at that event, you would have met all kinds of other competitors of ours who, you know, they're they're great at what they do. They may do it a little differently, but they're trying to retain staff. They're people in the, the apartment industry is a great career. I mean, you get to do some really interesting things. I mean, there's apartment buildings everywhere in the United States, so you can work in a lot of different locations. Where else after a couple of years of training, might you be given a $50 million asset to watch over day to day? I mean, it's an incredible amount of responsibility that people are given 
So I think it's a really exciting thing. And it, it is, the industry needs to keep being good evangelists about the opportunities, both on the property side and as an investment or financial person in the industry, for sure. We're going to get there. And one of the things that, that I think that uh, tides rise all boats. And so you help the tide to rise by your size and scale and what you've done in the industry. But the entire industry does get to lift in many respects from that perspective. So we talked about turnover and we talked about staff. Talk about resident turnover and what that statistic generally looks like, particularly in your demographic. And then we'll dig into your demographic and then we'll move subjects here. Sure, sure. So resident turnover during COVID was a bit of a roller coaster. At first, so think about 2020, everyone's afraid, no one moved. All right. So just lock down in your unit, not moving. Then when it was possible to move, there was a sucking sound in places like Manhattan, where people, that was not a pleasant place to live at that point. The things they loved about living there, coffee shops and the bodega and just the, the office, everything was closed. And so it was more comfortable, especially our demographic often has other choices. You know, they kept their jobs by and large and they took their incomes and they went elsewhere. But the elsewhere is interesting. I'll digress just a moment. People were talking about everyone's leaving New York. They're going to Texas or Florida. We keep track of where everyone comes to us from because we see your address when you apply and your forwarding address where you leave. We did not see that at all. The people who left San Francisco, they left for the suburban counties that surround San Francisco and Los Angeles. The people that left the city of New York, Manhattan specifically, left for New Jersey and the tri-state area surrounding it. So we did not, in fact, and they've all come back. So this increase, there were definitely people in our system who were, say, let's say 38 with their first child, who were planning to leave us in a year or two. This was the end. They just, they just accelerated those decisions. But it didn't, in our frame of reference, places like New York that are super energized, Boston is up and running again. These young people want to be there. They weren't there just for their jobs to begin with. They were there for the lifestyle. They wanted to be with other like-minded people of their age, taking advantage of the amenities that these big urban centers offer. Got it. You touch on New York and you mentioned San Francisco briefly. Talk about mm -hmm. recovery in those markets and recovery, not just in your portfolio, but particularly as I look at San Francisco downtown, I live in the Bay Area, it's still brutal. So the office market still and daily census is really bad. Mm -hmm. The key card fob thing is horrendous in my particular market. And the downtown hasn't recovered as a place to be. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that affects you, actually, because still a lot of people live here, love living here. It's a great place. So mm -hmm. talk about that combination in San Francisco and other major historic markets. It does affect us. We have a material presence in the city of San Francisco, small city, as you well know, but we have a material presence there and certainly in the city of New York, and we'll contrast those. So what happened in New York is the recovery in New York, certainly there are more office swipes, but part of it is everything is open again. I mean, just been in New York two weeks ago, talking to our people in New York, literally weekly, you, you walk around, the coffee shops are open, the restaurant, everything, and everything, most everything is open again. There's real energy in the streets. You know, if you walk around, except for the folks wearing masks, you wouldn't have known a pandemic existed. You know, I was on the subway. That was, I mean, it's just really, really active. That's very attractive to our demographic. Even before COVID, our demographic worked remotely. If you went one of our New York buildings at two o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday, there were folks in a resident lounge pounding away on their laptops. So the work matters, but not that much to us. I think our residents live in New York. They live in Boston, they live in DC, they live in West LA because they like those lifestyles. They could live somewhere cheaper, but they like living in those environments. And that's what's attractive. 
What is unattractive to them is when that environment doesn't exist. So the city of San Francisco, and I was there at the beginning of May to me, felt safer, like, but empty. Safer, but empty. To your point, just not very energized. Just getting a bite to eat for breakfast was a little challenging. Not a lot of people on the street. The financial district was empty. That lack of energy is not exciting. I mean, our person wants to be able to go, whether it's to club activities they enjoy, health clubs and things like that, to a bar or restaurant, to be able to run or, or bike outside and have a lot of people around. That, that just wasn't there yet. It is getting better. Our occupancy in, in the city is approaching 96%, the city of San Francisco, but it's the only market we've been, sub-market, we've been unable to get back to pre-pandemic rents. It's interesting. It becomes those downtown markets here on the West Coast, and it may be safety issues, and there they are no longer existing or has to be rebuilt in a pretty big way, and mm -hmm. trust has to be gotten back. Mm -hmm. But if you go to Silicon Valley, I assume your Silicon Valley portfolio is doing really well. San Jose is killing it. And I'd say one other thing. We have to remember that our demographic is younger. They certainly care about safety, but their focus isn't, as we older investors and observers look at it, our focus on safety is a little different. And so it is important. They want to feel comfortable. They want to be able to go for their morning run. They want to feel... But, you know, cities have always had a little bit of edge to them. Yep. So a little bit of edge, I think, is part of what they're buying into. But I think they want that activation, the ability to go to restaurants, the ability to enjoy their lives and feel safe. My prediction is that at the end of this year, you and I will be happier about San Francisco than we are today. Yeah, I sure hope so. And uh, bouncing on subjects, talk about short-term stay. And do you allow that in your properties? Do you allow that by your residents or do you do it yourself? Yeah. So first of all, there are prohibitions in some localities. So obviously when local law says no, the answer is no. We have worked with Airbnb and their friendly buildings program where you allow a certain number of residents to do that. It's really important though, the character of our buildings. Our residents want generally quiet buildings without a lot of, they wanted to live in a hotel, they would have signed up to live in a hotel. So right. we try to be, Matt, very thoughtful about the amount of Airbnb activity we allow. We're quite aggressive in pursuing lease violations on that. But we do see that some of our residents, for example, who travel a good amount, if they want a little extra income, we're willing to balance that out on our end with only a certain number of units per week or month. Can Airbnb, we're able to moderate it that way. We are trying to, we're trying to work with people on that. And how do you think that evolves? I think it was way too many units at first. And I think it's reaching an equilibrium, just like cities are trying to figure it out. A few places have just outright said no, but a lot of places are just trying to regulate it. They see some benefit in short-term stays. They want to collect the hotel tax, by the way, which is an important thing because we're responsible in some jurisdictions for that, even though we had nothing to do with it since it's our building. So having Airbnb and others take responsibility for collecting that is an important benefit as well, by the way, of that program. So I tell you, I think it's still evolving. You see overseas places like Barcelona, just they just hate it because it's overrunning their city. We don't have a lot of buildings where it's overrun the building, but we don't want people loitering in the lobby with their luggage. It's just not the image for a high-end building we're trying to build. Yeah, I could get, there's everyone walking with a rollerboard in your building. Yeah. All of a sudden you feel like you're in a hotel. You just don't want that 
that visual. Even if you don't know your neighbors, you don't want that visual. And talk about corporate furnished apartments while we're on the subject. And, and is there some continuum between that? Do you offer that? Is that part of your model these days? Wow, what, a, what a great question. Well, we don't do a lot of corporates because our experience has been poor. I mean, when you get to a point like a pandemic or the 08 recession, no matter what they say to you, no matter how well they say they're capitalized, when their customers gone, they're gone. So there's probably an exception here and there for medical people like nurses and stuff where that business is just continuous. And in fact, in the pandemic was Especially even stronger. COVID. Yeah. Yeah. But we've, we've kept the numbers low. We, we long ago learned our lesson. So I think right now in the company, we are about 1% corporate, but I will say there's a lot of innovation here to be done around term. Almost all our leases are one year leases. And it seems odd to me that all of our residents happen to default to one year. You know, I mean, people have, I don't want to be a hotel company with daily rates, but there's probably some innovation here that can be done about shorter terms than that. I wonder about the ability to have more flexibility there, which again is something that young people want more of um, than maybe we our residents in the past. And they're trained to do it. Again, back to that training thing. And, and that means furnished apartments. It could. Now, we don't do that now. We refer you to a furnished provider. And generally, it's a lower margin business. I mean, equity residential, a high margin business renting out apartments. If you own all the plates and dishes and, you know, the towels and all the sofa and all alike, that's a lower margin business, a lot more depreciation. And so we've generally not found that to be that suited to our model. And it was better to have a referral arrangement with a local provider, but I am intrigued by it. I mean, I have, I do wonder in my mind, would it get us, I'd be more interested in it if it got us more residents, not merely in the premium, but did it attract the demographic we don't now appeal to? I've not heard that. Our buildings are 97% full. I don't feel like I need that demographic right now, but like lease terms, I wonder if in the future, there couldn't be a situation where if you're a flexible worker at Microsoft and you can work anywhere. Maybe you have a gold pass lease from Equity Residential and you're paying us 12 months rent and you could be in Seattle, Los Angeles, maybe it's a month at a time or some period longer than a day or a week, but there's some in between a hotel arrangement and we experiment with things like that. We're doing work with a company called Central, which you probably know of, and they have this continuum. So some of it's what we used to call corporate, some of it's short-term stay, the rest of it's permanent one-year leases, but the one-year leases may be facilitated to enable an overnight stay. So all different business models. And speaking of different business models, we've talked about the affluent renter that you have in your portfolio. There are adjacencies, and in the past, you've been in middle-income housing as well. And adjacencies like student housing, seniors housing, do you play with that? Do you think about that and once you have your operating platform, couldn't that be efficiently expanded into those adjacent businesses? So we do think of ourselves as a residential company. So your point is we happen to be really all in this apartments, but we do think about other areas. Um, folks that are longtime observers of the company know that we've owned units that are focused on older folks more so, 55 and older. We've owned student apartments. We've owned, we owned Lexford, which was very much a lower middle income portfolio. So we want to own residential apartments. We found the affluent niche, not because it's affluent, we liked it because we thought with the changes in technology that over the long haul, these would be the people who were creating the efficiencies, they weren't losing their jobs. To cater, for example, to truck drivers, a very honorable profession, but as people learn, 
and technology maybe learns to drive trucks between nodes overnight remotely, there may be a lot fewer truck drivers in the United States. That may be a good thing, by the way, because that's a tough job. But if your renters are mostly truck drivers, that's a tough situation. Whereas if my guy's the data engineer who's been busy figuring out how to do that automation. So our view was that we'd be less subject to automation risk, to technology pushing our resident out of the workforce or making their skills obsolete. So that was one thought. Inflation was something we had in mind that didn't matter for a long time and I think is about to matter a lot. I mean, our average resident pays us 19% of their income in rent. A lot of them, not all, but a lot of them don't own cars. We have buildings that don't even have garages. These folks aren't as subject to gas, the increase in gas pressure. Uh, it doesn't matter what the supply demand imbalance is in a market. If your resident is stressed between paying higher food costs because they don't have a lot of disposable income and filling up the gas tank is 80 bucks twice a week instead of 35 or 40, I think that's a real pinch. And that's going to pressure, I think, B and C apartment owners a lot more than it's going to pressure an equity residential. So I would say EQR dismisses no type of residential housing as investable. They all are. But you got to be really thoughtful because we're longer term guys. So if it's just a trade for a couple of years, that's not going to be worth it. We need to see some secular shift, some move we think has legs to think about that business. And we got to move into a business that has a margin that's our margin or better. And a lot of the businesses, again, senior housing with services, for example, a lot of people, much lower margin business, you know, a lot more staffing concerns. You know, I, I appreciate the argument that the gray wave's coming, but if your margin's less than half of our margin, I'm still not sure it's the right business for us. Makes sense. And you used to be a developer. You've gotten in and out of development. And we had Doug Yearly from Toll Brothers on the podcast uh, a month or two ago, and you have a venture with them. Talk about development, development risk, and that versus acquisitions for your business. Sure. I mean, one of the advantages of equity residential is we'll do either. We'll be a buyer of existing assets, just straight acquisitions, or we'll develop. And we do have our in-house development team. And it is operating in our existing legacy markets. So LA, San Francisco, Seattle, Boston, New York, and Washington, DC. The great thing about Toll, but first and foremost, is that they have a terrific culture, terrific leadership. They match up well with them. We had done a, a joint construction project of a big tower in New York 10 years ago. And when we started talking again, Doug and I, it was the same people. It was really great. So I think about our development, Matt, it's really in three legs. Our existing team does a great job in our existing markets, but most of all in these attempts, we call it gentrification or densification, densification I should say. Yeah. yeah, taking out 60 units in the middle of a garden apartment and putting 200 in. Regulators like those deals. The apartment building already exists. A lot less risks for our shareholders. We understand the ground, no environmental issues. If it takes longer to permit, we've got units making money on it. And then third, we do do JVs away from toll in places they don't have a presence. For example, um, we had an existing relationship in uh, Westchester County, New York. So we're building an, a building out that way. So there's a little bit of that. So we like development, we're deep in it. Um, but I would say, unlike others, we aren't as committed to it. We don't have such a big team that I feel pressure that we have to do some development all the time. I think if we need to shut the machine off for a little while, we can do that. And sometimes with development, that's a wise thing to do. Right. And once you have the embedded infrastructure, it's hard to do that because you just got to go. Yep. 
that pivots us to one of the topics that you raised before, which was political risk. And it's really interesting to think of political risk as part of the apartment business or part of the real estate business, which it most definitely is. We did a search for you guys like four or five years ago. And one of the bullet points on the, on the job responsibilities and then the required background had to do with being able to deal with public agencies, not on entitlements, but on a broader political right. risks scale. Right. And in California, of course, it's particularly meaningful with all the rent control initiatives. Talk about that. Yeah. So, and I'm glad you called it political risk, not rent control risk, because we don't care just about rent control. We want cities investing in infrastructure. You know, we want New York to keep its subways up. We want the roads kept up so our residents are happy to live there. We want pro-business policies so there's growth in the market. So it's all of those things. So to be a senior investment officer at EQR, you need to be able to have conversations with local policymakers, with your peers. We're often working through a trade association, the California Apartment Association, the Real Estate Board of New York, but be able to go with them and advocate the policymakers. And, you know, there is a lot of controversy on these issues. But these are often pretty good conversations because, again, if rent control worked so well, wouldn't New York have the cheapest housing in the country? They've had rent control for since World War II. And yet it's one of the least well-housed cities in the United States. So when you start talking about, listen, we share your concern about homelessness, about the lack of affordable housing, the industry can help if it's given the right motivation and the right opportunity. And then you start to have a productive conversation. And you also try to weigh in on these things like public safety. Justice and safety are not inconsistent values. And we talk a lot to policymakers about how those could be balanced out. Um, so that our residents are comfortable living in downtown San Francisco again. So again, I think uh, at our company, we don't look at it as a huge problem as much as something we need to manage. We need to talk all the time to the public. We need to talk all the time to policymakers about why the industry is not evil, not the boogeyman, but can be part of a solution. Mm -hmm. And how do you engage in that when you're not yourself in that game? So you're not providing directly solutions in that area you're speaking on those subjects and engaged in those subjects as a corporate citizen. Any comments to how you effectively help pursue that conversation? Sure. Well, besides all this advocacy, I mean, we have an idea of how to build affordable housing too. We have 2,500 affordable units in our buildings. They were part of 80-20 programs in New York and things of that nature, where we purchased the properties knowing that we had units, for example, where the rent is $700 a month next door to a unit where the rent's 4,000 a month. So those are complex programs, we manage those. We advocate, for example, in Boston, they're very slow. We, our lowest occupancy is in our affordable units. And you say, well, how can that be in a city that's so underhoused? Well, the city has to approve every resident, has to go through the page, and they're slow. I know they're trying, however, but their bureaucracy is daunting. And so we try to work with municipalities there. So we got 2,500 units. We made a $5 million investment in a partnership actually headquartered in California, but they do business across the country, very experienced affordable housing professionals. And they go out and they buy C properties that otherwise would be demolished or would be upgraded to more of a luxury spec. They put on covenants so that they're affordable long-term. They renovate them. They put them into the LIHTC pro. They do things to get it up to snuff again. They put capital in um, and we're delighted to be part of that program. It has a fair bit of risk, but, you know, we think it's these people know what they're doing and it's very well run. So 
we think we need to be part of the solution and put some of the money behind it. Yeah. And well, not everyone can provide that. And it's really tough to make those numbers work as well. Talk about carbon in your portfolio. And you're recognized as a leader in that space, but talk about that. Yeah. So this sort of, I'm going to call it sustainability generally, and we will tie it to, to carbon in a second, but the whole sustainability conversation at EQR really started eight, nine years ago. We published our first report eight years ago, which I think is earlier than any other apartment read. Um, and back then it was simple stuff, singles, like taking out all the incandescent light bulbs and putting in LEDs. And it was great for the shareholders. It made money because it was lower expense in the common areas. We often put motion detectors in. So for our residents, it was still very comforting, the light in garages and places like that. So it was kind of like the low hanging fruit. And then we kept moving up to the point where of our 300 buildings, a third of them, so over a hundred, I uh, have on-site power generation or solar arrays. And so we really work hard to try and anticipate what our regulators, which are mostly local regulators, want and engage in those conversations too. In a lot of cities, you have these building performance rules about you know, how that building is going to need to perform in 2025 or 2030. And we're trying to be part of those conversations. So on carbon specifically, we put out a promise in our last program that the board enthusiastically endorsed. And using the science-based targets initiative, it was to lower emissions in the portfolio 30% by 2030. So we're working on that. That's an ambitious goal for us. We're involved with all the conversations around the new SEC rules, which some of which are really <laughs> going to be quite challenging to administer. They're not straightforward. The rules aren't out yet. They're still uh, in the proposal stage, but that'll be a sea change too, Matt, in what's uh, what's required of public companies. Mm-hmm. And will there be buildings that can't comply with where the law is most likely going and therefore obsolete buildings? What do you do with that? That's a great point because it's the intersection of two important things. And clearly there's a lot of folks concerned about climate for a lot of good reasons. A lot of folks concerned about the housing crisis for a lot of good reasons. So if you think about, and again, I'll use New York, the backbone of the affordable housing stock in New York are walk-ups post-World War II construction. Those are not energy efficient buildings. We require a lot of capital to make them so. So what do you care more about? Affordable housing or climate? Because there is a trade-off and that's where it's a little frustrating with the policymakers where these rules are passed as if they have nothing to do with each other. So you can't have an eviction moratorium in New York and very lenient rules about residents paying rent and demand that landlords put a lot of capital in for climate modernization. Then also wonder why no one's building apartments. If you think there's a housing crisis, treat it as such. Be aggressive about pushing all your levers to get more supply. Climate is an important trade-off, but it isn't the only imperative because in the housing industry, you're affecting the amount of supply and you've got people who are underhoused. So that's a point of frustration with me and the rest of the industry is that the rules, though well-meaning, they are—they really are mostly very well-meaning, are going to have an impact on supply that, as I don't think, is what policymakers or the public wants and I, I think is really in conflict. Yeah, well, they definitely have conflicting goals, but both are really, really important. It's interesting as you talk about this, and we're going to change subject and, and talk about you, but as we talk about this, you're half talking these subjects as the leader of EQR, and you're half talking these subjects as the apartment industry in general. And they both matter, and they both matter to you. They do. And I think one of the great things about this job is to have this vantage point 
where you were in all these markets. I get great input on what's going on in California and New York and, and what's going on in places like Florida where we don't do business, where there's a lot of conversation there about rent control now. So people are frustrated. And by the way, inflation will make that frustration worse. So we need to have the right kind of conversations with people and be really proactive. But I'm fortunate to be in this job where I get all that information. And so what I try to do is, you know, kind of spit that back at people and say, listen, we're seeing this everywhere. We see this pressure. How can we address it? Yeah. Well, let's leave that one there. Leading Voices originally talked to people, the whole conversation was about their career paths and how they got into leadership. So we save that for five minutes at the end now, because <laughs> uh, it's so interesting talking about the business. But how did you get into this? What brought you to this place? What brought you into the apartment business and brought you into a CFO role, which is where you grew up in the business? Sure. So I'll, I'll just pick a day in the middle of July, 1999, which was a bit of a personal turning point, And then it'll allow the whole story to be rather succinct. So in the morning, my wife told me she was expecting our first child, who's now actually about to finish college. So time does fly. And later that day, I learned that the law firm I was working at, which was Sam Zell's captive law firm, was going to close down. And that that was Sam was ahead of the game. So this was before Sarbanes-Oxley, but he had spun off all these public companies and they needed to have their own staffs now. He wouldn't sort of provide this support, understandably. Well, obviously, I was surprised by this. And I was offered this opportunity to come to Equity Residential as a business person. I have a business background. I have an accounting degree from Michigan. I you know, worked for a while in the public accounting world. I continued to do work in that area. Even Are you I an attorney? Working. I am. And so all of that was a backdrop to say I had this opportunity to take a job in an area I hadn't thought that much about, which was apartment finance, with a company I admired who was a client and a person I admired and David Nethercutt and the rest of the team here and Alan George and Bruce Strom and a lot of people I had great admiration for. And I said, you know, I got to try. I've got to give this, this, this opportunity. It may not work and I can go back to being a lawyer. I understood my downside very clearly. And I think that's like a message as you're making big decisions in your life, career-wise and otherwise. Understand your upside, believe in your upside, but understand what happens if it doesn't work. And I understood very clearly I could go work at another law firm and it would be okay, but this special opportunity would only come up once. I had no idea it'd turn out like this, but I worked my way up through the finance organization and became EQR CFO in 2007. I was thrilled. I told my wife I had the job of my dreams, and then immediately the entire economy collapsed, and I thought I would be riding the entire apartment industry, the entire corporate world into the ground. We'd all go together. Uh, and instead, you know, I got to be part of this process of the company of recapitalizing the whole industry. I mean, we did not issue dilutive equity. We were very disciplined, but there are a lot of nervous nights. And I got to feel that as a leader right away, that sort of level of responsibility. And then like anytime you work in a Zelle organization, your job changes every three years. And we began working on the Archstone acquisition, which was a deal that didn't happen until 2012, but had a lot of fits and starts, it was sort of a 400 level course in mergers and acquisitions. So we bought the $16 billion Archstone portfolio along with one of our competitors. And that was a terrific deal for the company and sort of completed our transformation into these coastal high uh, barrier to entry markets. And then uh, towards the end of my career as a CFO, just sort of refining the portfolio, seeing that what had worked before might not work, might not continue to work exactly as it had. So let's refine this portfolio. Let's go back into Denver. Let's go a little bit in the center and, and some of the nearer in suburbs, not the exurbs like we were before. And we started to do that. 
And so I had these sort of three chapters in my life as a CFO. So I was a CFO 11 years to the end of 18. And in 2019, I became EQR CEO. I will always be grateful that I had 2019, which I look at as the easy year to get used to the job before the challenges that were 2020 and 2021. But again, great team here at our company, and we we weathered the storm. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I did a study, or I looked at the numbers some years ago at CEOs of REITs, and a whole bunch of them had come from the CFO role. That was the most typical role that was promoted, sometimes chief investment officer, but often CFO, never the other, much less the others. What is it about that role that prepares someone to do this? Yeah, I mean, we are a capital intensive business, real estate. So I think being the day-to-day person most close to the capital, both debt and equity, gives you a unique vantage point. Like I understood our strategy very well from being inside the company, but I also understood all the positive comments and not so positive comments I was hearing directly from investors. That's true of every CFO. You hear everything, right? Not No investors, they're never always happy. Okay, that just... It doesn't last long, investor happiness. They're always concerned about the next downturn or the next change in the market. So I would say for for most CFOs, they get pretty broad experience. They're close to the capital in a capital-intensive business. I bet you there's a lot more chief operating officers who ascend to businesses in places where it's more of a consumer-facing business. Day-to-day, you're making cereal or um, you're doing something like that. You're a, a technology company where the finance function is important, but just not as important. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I think the other thing that you see in the company, and gosh, we've just spent half the conversation on operations, is that as a CFO, you understand the business holistically, not just from the capital side, but every component of the business, you're looking at its performance and its metrics. And so I think that prepares you to go into the seat where everything matters. And I guess as we talk, and this is a new thought on my part, as a recruiter, I bet you more COOs will have chief operating officers, the ability to ascend to this chair. If technology, if the REIT companies are getting more mature, and we really are in this third phase of using technology to become more efficient, the COO is often the, the person at the center of that experience. And so if those go well, those, those folks, especially you know, ones that have investor exposure, may become right. particularly capable. I think it depends also, the other thing you talked about was strategy and, and the portfolio composition and the M&A experience you had. So each of those, and sometimes the COO role doesn't have as much strategic high-level investment side. It's they know how to make the trains run, but that's mm-hmm. that isn't the story for the future. Yeah, fair comment. But again, our team, one of the things I try to do is expose everyone to everything within me, reason. I mean- if you're our head of HR, you need to know we're thinking about some sort of acquisition that could affect staffing. I think having your team aligned and aware, Matt, is really important. And I think that adds to their ability to step up when they might need to. Yeah. Well, you also want someone in your executive team room where everyone cares about everything, not just falling asleep when you're discussing the other guy's silo. <laughs> That's a dangerous place to be in a company, and it doesn't. it's not the mark of a great leader. Sure. So talk about what the biggest challenge and change has been for you becoming the CEO besides COVID. (laughs) But but where did you have to put your head there? It wasn't before. Well, I think you've got to be very mindful of self-care and self-balance. 
because this is truly a job you can do 24 hours a day. As a CFO, there were times where I had done my duty. I'd done everything I needed to do. And whether it was for a, a vacation or for an evening or for a weekend, I didn't have a lot on the docket, you know? As a CEO, it's just a constant series of peaks. So you have to be thoughtful about your time. When do you, how do you take a break? Is it exercise? Is it your faith? Is it, what is it that recharges you, that lets you be efficient in your job, lets you be a person who can take the pressure, frankly, for a long periods of time? Because the job does have pressure associated with it. So for me, it was just figuring that out. I had figured out the balance for CFO. And I had to figure out the balance for CEO. And it's a step function, higher level of intensity because your job's really never done. There's always some part you're responsible for 150,000 people, 300 buildings, 2,800 employees. There's always something that requires attention. And so it's, you got to know how to manage that and not burn yourself out. Yeah, totally true. It's interesting. I also take some inspiration from Sam who has to think, and he loves to think big picture. He's thinking out of the box and big picture, and he's having fun. And you're allowed to do some of that, and that's important to have the perspective to lead. Yeah, it is. This uh, kind of like having bifocals, right? I mean, unlike Sam, I do have to have my eyes on the details. I got to know the specifics as well. And by the way, he has instant recall of every detail I tell him. But at my level, you know, understanding the details and also stepping back and going, what's the big trend here? What just happened? I mean, are, is, is our resident base changing? Is, is the general economy, the political environment, are those things changing such that our investment or operating or people strategy needs to change? So I think as a CEO, you are in a position of uniquely being challenged to understand both the details of the business and the big picture. And for me, it's about having a few big, big priorities, but being aware of everything else. Not everything can be a level one priority, but you need to pick three or four things, maybe two things that really you're going to try and prosecute every week in your company. Move forward, move forward. The other stuff you're going to try and make, be aware of, try and make a little bit better every day. But you're just, you got to focus your efforts. I think unfocused leadership is not effective. Dangerous, dangerous. Hey, um, we're going to wrap up. One thing I noticed in terms of extracurricular is we have something in common. I've been the chair of the board of an organization called Extra Food Marin, which is a food recovery organization in Marin. And you've been part of the Chicago Food Bank for a while. Any yeah. comments on that and its success in your participation? Yeah. Well, first, I commend you for being involved in that. I, I think when I thought about how I could give back. My wife and I, many years ago, we started working in food banks, just packaging food. Um, that would then be distributed at churches and sites. And we made, of course, uh, both financial and time contributions. And we got involved with the Greater Chicago Food Depository, which is sort of the central umbrella organization for food banks. They have a huge warehouse. And there's a lot of terrific history in our company or in our organization, because uh, Sam's deceased partner, Bob Lurie, his his wife, his estate funded the giant warehouse they use. Mm -hmm. And it's so the Lurie organization did. So that was pretty neat too. So we got involved in that. My wife and I were really passionate about it. Nothing good could happen in a day if you're if you're hungry. So I think, you know, this motto they have of ending hunger is a terrific one. And like you, I have a 
a desire to, you know, leave a legacy of, of improving a lot of everyone around me. Yeah. Well, you're hitting both of them. There's nothing good can happen in a day if you're not hungry and nothing good can happen in a day if you don't have a pillow to put your head on at the end of the day too. So really matters. Last question on leading voices is always your advice for a young person getting into the real estate business. Yeah. Don't, don't be afraid to take a chance. I did. I took that chance when I didn't know, even though I just found out we were expecting the baby and all that excitement and financial burden you all of a sudden have. I took that chance on this job. I never have known it worked out this well, but especially when you're newer in your career, take some chances, but understand your upside and downside. Just understand where you're headed and where it leads. Uh, And to me, getting great experience is more important early in your career than what you're getting paid. Volunteer for the extra work, push yourself, try and make yourself valuable to your employer. And like I said, good things will happen. You know, you, no one has a plan that, that survives contact with the real world. But at the end of the day, working hard is the cure to many problems and taking a chance here and there. That's a calculated risk. I think it'll take hard workers to good places. It's interesting. I use the word serendipity, which is if you do all the things you said or you stay under the hoop, another a basketball, right? If you stay under the hoop, serendipity, and you do really well, and you get a lot of rebounds, whatever it is, but serendipity will take you as well. So it, it will happen. You just have to be right there. Yeah. I think about it also as like people say you're lucky. Well, yeah, the bus didn't hit me as I crossed the street, but I, I mean, you people make their own luck. You know, you get to a certain point in life where, you know, if you've made some good decisions, you've had fortunate occurrences. But again, I encourage put yourself in a position to succeed. Totally true. Hey, Mark, thank you very much. This is a great conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me and Equity Residential on. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.